Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and uh, it's my real pleasure today to have Jeff Dolvin on the podcast. Um, I'll tell you lots more about Jeff um, in, in just a moment. Uh, he, he has kindly agreed. It's funny, we had, a, we had a funny little email correspondence about this. At some point, Jeff accused me of having twisted his arm, which I, d- I don't think I did. But, um, he has kindly agreed, per my suggestion, I suppose, to talk about uh, Sir Thomas Wyatt, a uh, great uh, English Renaissance poet, and, and his, uh, perhaps one of his most, not know perhaps about it, and one of his most well-known poems, a poem um, called They Flee From Me. Um, Actually, maybe we could talk about the title and and uh, or what what I take to be the title, which, as I understand it, is a sort of convention kind of post hoc um, um, uh, uh, strategy for referring to the poem rather than um, a title in this in the modern sense. Anyway, the poem is called "They Flee from Me," Sir Thomas Wyatt. As ever, there will be a link to the text of the poem provided in the episode notes. Um, so those of you who might like to um, look at the text as we talk about it, we'll be able to find it there. It's been a couple of weeks since we've had a new episode, and I'm really excited to be diving back in right now um, with Jeff. Um, Jeff Dolvin is a professor in the Department of English at Princeton University, where he teaches um, courses in poetry and poetics, um, especially um, of the English Renaissance. Um, and he's the author of three books of criticism. Uh, the first, his first book was called Scenes of Instruction in Renaissance Romance, and that was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2007. Um, he, he has also more recently um, written a book called Senses of Style, Poetry Before Interpretation. Um, that book was also published by Chicago, this one in, in 2018. And Senses of Style is a fascinating book about which I'll have more to say in a moment. Um, but I, I can say just quickly now that it's a book that is in large part about today's poet, Thomas, Sir Thomas Wyatt. Um, it's, it's also in large part about the, the poet who is the subject of the very first episode of Close Readings, uh, Frank O'Hara. Um, and it's about O'Hara's, uh, among other things, it's about O'Hara's admiration uh, for Wyatt and um, the continued life that Wyatt had in O'Hara's poetry. Um, so I think uh, after this conversation, many of you will want to, if you haven't already read it, r- rush out and order a copy of Senses of Style. I'll make a link to that book available as well. Um, and then um, Jeff, also, uh, there's a third book of criticism, which he describes on his website as admittedly hasty. Um, it's a book called Take Care. It was published by Cabinet in, in 2017. Um, and uh, it, it is a book that was written under, under um, certain preset constraints. Um, among them, most notably, was that it was a book that he wrote in 24 hours. I think I've got that right. That's yeah. right. Okay fascinating experiment um the that is the opposite of my method (laughs) or you know it takes me approximately 24 years to write a book yeah um okay Uh, um jeff is also a poet he's he's um one of the one of the guests um on uh this podcast series for whom both things are true scholar and poet um jeff has two books of poetry um one called speculative music which was published by saraband in in 2013 and then most recently a book of poetry called a new english grammar 
which may not sound like the title of a book of poetry, but but I can assure you is, and um, and it's a fascinating title with an asterisk at its at, at the at the beginning of its um, of its words. Um, maybe Jeff, you can tell us about what that's meant to signify. Uh, that book was published by Dispersed Holdings in 2022. Um, so, but back to senses of style for a moment. I I was fascinated. Um, by this book in part because I love a book um, that takes an experimental uh, approach to, I mean, in particular, an acad- a book of academic literary criticism that takes a kind of experimental approach to its own form. Um, and, and this surely is such a book. Um, the book is a collection of remarks in, in Jeff's sort of self-effacing description of the, uh, well, you might call them paragraphs, but some of them seem a bit longer than that. Um, some quite a bit shorter. Some are just a a single sentence, Uh, a book of some 400 remarks that um, take as their occasion. uh, There's this beautiful story Jeff tells in the acknowledgments to that book in which he says as a, as a boy, he was, I think in the car listening um, to the radio with his father and he correctly guessed that um, the symphony, I think, or the piece of music that he was listening to at the moment, that the composer of that music was Brahms. And his father said to him, right, now what makes you say so? Um, Jeff says, well, that question stayed with me for many years. Um, and that, that's a question whose answer, I think, is something like the word style. Uh, but of course, what that word means is a very hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to, it's a, it's a sort of slippery subject for a book. And Jeff does a beautiful job at sort of um, circling patiently, curiously, imaginatively that, um, that subject. And it's clear that he is a scholar who is also a poet, you know, who, who um, is able to make the kinds of leaps of imagination that um, we're accustomed to or expect from our poets, but maybe don't necessarily expect as readily from our critics. So I really admire this um, criticism uh, that this book of criticism that Jeff has um, written style is a way he tells us at some point. And then um, there's this moment, which I just want to quote because it's, it's from early in the book. And I think it's sort of exemplary of the sensitivity of, of the readings at work here. And it sort of does bring us full circle, brings together Wyatt and the poet um, with whom this series began, Frank O'Hara. Remember I talked to Brian Glavy about um, O'Hara's great poem, having a Coke with you. Um, Jeff describes in the um, in the early pages of this book how it came to be that O'Hara became a reader of Sir Thomas Wyatt, and he quotes uh, briefly from one of Wyatt's translations of the poet Petrarch, um, a poem called uh, in in Wyatt's translation "My Galley Charged with Forgetfulness," which ends this way. So this is remember Wyatt translating Petrarch. The stars be hid that led me to this pain. Drowned is the reason that should me comfort, and I remain despairing of the port. Uh, I'm now skipping ahead slightly. After this, Jeff tells us about how O'Hara read Wyatt in college at Harvard. The chapter ends this way. Uh, by reference, by reference to um, a poem which I gather many of you know, a, a poem of Frank O'Hara's called "To the Harbor Master." Um, but in case you don't, Jeff usefully quotes its final lines here. The end. Of, now this is Jeff Dolvin. The end of "To the Harbor Master," 
plays a variation on the final suspension of my galley. Quote, I trust the sanity of my vessel, and if it sinks, it may well be an answer to the reasoning of the eternal voices, the waves which have kept me from reaching you. Now back to Jeff. This not quite reaching you is O'Hara's version of remaining despairing of the port. The eternal voices of the waves postpone the final union, and the poem ends in refusing an ending. It refuses its you as well, who is Larry Rivers, friend and more of O'Hara's, in 1954, but also, half-remembered, Petrarch's Laura, the famous love object of Petrarch's sonnets. Now, Jeff again. It does, however, choose Wyatt. It chooses him not as an object, but as a model. If not love, then likeness. Well, I just, I just love the, the, um, the beautiful distinctions um, and the care uh, that are drawn there and the care with which Jeff draws them. And, and this reminds me, and this is the last thing I'll say by way of introduction. I know I've gone on for a minute. How I first heard of Jeff Dolvin. We share the same undergraduate institution, and and I and I'm now convinced that, I, or I know, I have no, I have been sus, um, suspected for many years, and now have ha- had it confirmed that we have the same freshman literature teacher, a man named Howard Stern, who was a professor of German poetry. Though neither Jeff nor I took him in in the context of his area of specialization, um, Howard Stern, back when we knew him certainly when I had him as a student, had to make a joke at the beginning of every semester saying, I'm, oh, I'm not that Howard Stern. Maybe, maybe you know, the shock jock on radio, maybe that that name has um, faded somewhat from public consciousness of the same, jo- same joke isn't necessary. Anyway, I, I already was very interested in the poet Elizabeth Bishop, and I was writing about a poem of hers, not for Howard, actually, for another class, but I was bugging Howard about it. I wanted him to read my writing. Um, a poem of hers called Squatter's Children, which in the course of the conversation, Howard told me, oh, I had a student, I think this is what he said, you know, fogs of memory and whatnot. I had a student named Jeff Dolvin who once noticed that the form of this poem, Squatter's Children, is borrowed by Bishop from Wordsworth and his poem, The Solitary Reaper. Um, which is, um, you know, you can look up the two poems and you'll see that that's exactly right. And it's a bit of an unusual form. Um, uh, the, the, there is a, a short third line in all these stanzas. The poems rhyme in the same way. They're the same number of lines. And even, in fact, if you think about it a bit, the poems concern themselves with some of the same kinds of issues. Anyway, it was... I mean, a couple of things stood out to me in that moment. One is it unlocked for me a way to think about poems across time, you know, to think about certain um, ways that poems can find continued life in each other. This is what reminds me of the O'Hara and Wyatt um, uh, interplay that that Jeff describes in Senses of Style. Um, it also made such an impression on me, you know, that here I had you know, this very sort of esteemed faculty member in my eyes at the time, I mean, and still, who had listened to his student, you know, who had and kept with him something that the student had noticed and then passed it along to another student years later. 
Um, so, you know, it's, I've, I've carried, you know, and then over the years, of course, I became aware of Jeff Dolvin, not just through classroom rumor, but, um, but in print and in all the other ways. Um, and, um, and now it's just such a delight to, to finally be sitting and talking to each other and to get to share our own thinking about poetry with, um, with this podcast audience. Um, so I want to thank Howard Stern for, um, for telling me about Jeff Dolvin years ago. And I want to thank, um, Jeff Dolvin for appearing on the podcast today. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm well, Kamran, And that's such a generous introduction. I love, I love that story and that reminiscence, which I, in fact, remember that moment very clearly, not for the suggestion that I made about Wordsworth, although I'm proud of myself now for having made it. But Howard brought me that poem. I hadn't read it, Squatter's Children, and his attraction to it was one line. Um, I think the, the the woman in question, the squatter, is is sort of digging in the dirt. Uh-huh. In that poem, there's a gathering s- storm, and she holds a mattock with a with a broken haft. A mattock <laughs> with a broken haft, and I guess a mattock is. I certainly looked it up at the time. I think it's something like a hoe. Um, but, but his love of it was the sound of like that the way and that the sounds? sort of thingy sound of it, the mattock yeah. with a broken half. Um, who, ne- who needs Heidegger when you've got, <laughs> you've got that line. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, right. And so, I, so I remember that very clearly. And he was a very important teacher, I guess, for both of us. Um, one of a couple, and maybe, maybe we'll canvas more of that yeah. territory as we go. But another thing I remember about Howard is that, I don't know if he was still doing this when you were there, but Friday afternoons. He would get together whoever whoever wanted for you know this moderately cheerful yeah. hour. <laughs> he didn't like to call it a happy hour. He thought that was overpromising. <laughs> exactly, um, but that was just a great scene of of literary conversation with wine and cheese. Much better wine and much better cheese than than any of us knew to appreciate. Mm. Um, and uh, that and a just- mix of um, his colleagues, but also. You know, students, students at various levels of advancement, and so on. So it was there was something very kind of democratic about it. That's that's really right, and it 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 gave me a glimpse of what felt like the, the possibility of a kind of intellectual sociability yeah. with literature, and and that's you know a very nice thing about being here together with you. That yeah. this podcast, we were saying before uh, coming on the air, it's sort of double sense of close reading both you know, playing attention to the text, but also close in, in, in conversation with, with each other. Um, and I think that's such a, um, such an important dimension of literary experience and what has always sort of brought me to it and kept me in it that I can talk about it with people who care about it or, or can be convinced to care about it. Um, and I think this, uh, this podcast is is now something of an archive of those occasions, and I don't know if other people are using it this way, but I've started to point students to it who ask, you know, so what is this close reading thing? I, you know, the poem is only six lines long. How am I supposed to write a five page paper about that? Right. Um, and you know, I've always had bits and pieces of writing by other people uh, that I've been able to point to and say, take a look at this or take a look at that. But this is this is a really wonderful sort of new. Uh, new element of that of that archive. So I've I've enjoyed it hugely, and I've been putting it to work, and I bet other people have been too. Uh, well, th- th- thank you for saying so, Jeff. Um, yeah, you know, right. 
close close readings in both of those senses. And maybe, you know, your work reminds me of this conversation, uh, what you said about Howard, all of that also reminds me close also in the sense of, you know, um, close to our own lives and our own sort of experiences, right? Um, which, you know, is maybe antithetical to what um, the new critics intended <laughs> uh, uh, with uh, the various reading strategies that tend to get grouped under that name. But, um but but maybe not. I, I don't know. So well, with that in mind, um, you know we're 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 here today to talk about um, Thomas Wyatt and talk about a particular poem of his. Uh, but I like not to take for granted that our listeners um, come into th- these conversations with any real set of um, preconceptions about who it is they're going to listen to. And given the fact that um, at least in terms of this podcast run, we're we're moving further back in time than we um, generally do, and so. Um, uh, maybe some kinds of historical um, uh, contextualizing would be useful. Um, I wonder if I can invite you just to begin the conversation, Jeff, by by telling us something about Sir Thomas Wyatt, about where he fits into your sense of literary history, the history of poetry. Um, he's often referred to as a court poet. Maybe you could tell us something about what it means to be a court, what it meant to be a court poet. Um, how seriously, in other words, should we take the sir at the beginning <laughs> that, that goes with Thomas <laughs> yes. Wyatt? Um, Petrarch, you know, I've already mentioned is a poet who's important um, to Wyatt. Maybe you could tell us something um, about that too. And 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 then finally, uh, just invite you to say something also weave it in however you like, but more personally about how it was that you came to be a reader of English Renaissance poetry in general, um, Sir Thomas Wyatt in particular, um, and any or all of that that you think would be useful as a way of setting up a conversation about this poem, I'd be really grateful to hear. Sure. Well, it really is useful to know something about Wyatt's life, um, not least because we're a long time before uh, anything in England, like a professional poet, um, the idea that that would be the center of your identity and certainly the way you earned your bread or keep, um, that's, a, that's a good ways in the future. And, and Thomas Wyatt had a quite extraordinary life within which the poems take a very interesting place. And so just to sketch it briefly, he was, he was born in 1502 and he's the son of Sir Henry Wyatt, um, who was a member of Henry VII's Privy Council. So quite close counselor of uh, uh, first of the Tudor monarchs um, who uh, was a, an extremely um, pragmatic, capable administrator king as they went at the time. That is, there was a sense that Henry VII was a good governor of England and a prudent man, and and Henry Wyatt was uh, an extremely important member of his inner circle, very much in that vein, known as a good and solid counselor, someone who'd survived great trouble under Richard III, been imprisoned, um, and and came to serve Henry VII very well. Um, He continues to serve uh, the monarchy under uh, Henry VII's successor, Henry VIII, um, whom we all already realize doesn't quite meet those sort of descriptions, the bureaucrat that I was offering. More well-known More well-known yeah. <laughs> and for all, all the wrong reasons. Um, and uh, Wyatt, because of uh, the advantage of his father's position, kind of works his way uh, sort of up through the ranks at court. Um, so he's among 
the various sort of aristocrats and gentlemen um, who are in service to Henry uh, from very early in his in his reign. Um, and quite unlike his father, uh, Thomas becomes a diplomat from the from mm-hmm. early on in his service in court. Um, he's going out on foreign missions, various places. So uh, he has an early diplomatic mission to France. Um, I think around 1527, uh, he is sent down to the papal court in Italy uh, for elaborate negotiations that have to do with whether or not Henry is going to stay married uh, to Catherine of Aragon, whether the Pope will give permission for this. Um, on the way back, um, he's captured by forces of the Holy Roman Empire and ransomed, ransomed back. And he just he goes on to have a really quite extraordinary diplomatic career. Um, he's also at another moment an, an ambassador to Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, oh. does some very touchy negotiating with him. Why it's a big man. He was probably over six feet as people describe him. Um, sounds like his talk was pretty profane. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, everybody who interacted with him in all of these foreign courts clearly enjoyed this sort of bluff, charismatic Englishman yeah. as he kind of traveled around making deals for his king. Um, so there are many ways in which uh, Wyatt was clearly uh, indispensable to Henry in a lot of sort of very complicated foreign negotiations. And just to zoom back for a moment, uh, this is a time when kind of seismic change is happening to England in part because of the sort of complicated erotic politics of Henry's own court. He's married to the, uh, to the Spanish queen, Catherine of Aragon. Um, she's not giving him an heir. Uh, he falls in love with Anne Boleyn um, and wants to arrange for a divorce from Catherine in order that he can marry Anne. Uh, and the Pope won't give it to him for reasons both doctrinal and political. Right. Um, and this is among the kind of precipitating causes of what we call the English Reformation, the break on the part of, of the English state with the Catholic Church right. and the turn towards Protestantism, towards reform religion and towards a, a Church of England on reformed lines. So Sir Wyatt is in court across this change, and he's a really important diplomat working for Henry. Um, and so far, you know, I've given you a portrait of somebody <laughs> who has, you know, a, a brilliant career up and up and up and up. Uh, but that's not, strictly speaking, uh, accurate um, because uh, to be in Henry's court, um, which is this sort of intimate, not to say claustrophobic circumstance in which sort of friendship, love, fidelity, infidelity, politics yeah. are all kind of mixed together. Um, kind of a tangle of family and eros and 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 power um, that's quite alien to those of us who think of politics as being done in big big white buildings. Um, this is very intimate intimate stuff. Um, sort of why it is sort of in there in that mix. It's kind of variously entangled with various of the personalities. He's pretty close to the Bolins, um, and when. Uh, there is no male heir um, from Anne Boleyn. Henry starts to sour on her and look for ways to get rid of her. Um, and in 1536, um, I think six men are imprisoned for adultery with Anne. Um, a musician, a guy named Mark Smeaton, some other 
uh, aristocrats, gentlemen, and, and Thomas Wyatt. Five of those men are executed. Uh, one of them walks away. We don't know exactly why, but Wyatt survives to fight again. More of the embassies that I was describing, uh, more of the infighting. Uh, Stephen Greenblatt memorably describes sitting down at Henry's table as being dining with Stalin. Yeah. I think that's quite, quite apt. That is never knowing whether you're in or out or up right. or down. Um, Wyatt serves well, but ends up going back uh, to the tower in 1540, 1541, I think. He's imprisoned again. Looks like he's going to be executed. And then once again, um, he is uh, he's freed and, and back in service to his king. Um, and it's on an embassy, you know, hastening to a southern port to receive a, a Spanish ambassador that he dies of a, of a fever in harness mm. uh, for Henry and a, and a year before Henry himself dies. So that's the guy we're talking about here. That's the poet. He was plenty busy with, uh, with state business. Uh, yeah. And in, and so, yeah. It's, well, sounds incredibly busy. And yet you haven't mentioned poetry yet. So <laughs> <No>. <laughs> where, where amidst all of this is he, I mean, how does poetry fit into the life of someone like Wyatt? let alone Wyatt himself. Yeah. Well, Wyatt also, a little unusually for someone in his position, uh, has a kind of humanist education. So he he spends some years at Cambridge University. Um, He clearly uh, reads Latin poets. Uh, His father encourages him in this. Um, So uh, not, not every aristocrat at this moment in English history uh, sort of learns learns to read Latin by any means. Uh, Wyatt had this background of, of that kind of poetry, um, and he's in a court environment where there is an increasing kind of back and forth of courtly lyrics of of poems, uh, often sort of imagined as sung to music or actually sung to music, which are sort of passed back and forth and read aloud of an evening and, and sort of part of a part of a traffic among courtiers. Um, as a, um, in some ways, the social equivalent of an, an especially handsome outfit or right. a special sort of gift at, at fencing or court tennis or something like that. It's a, it's a cultured accomplishment uh, that gets right. you a certain credit within that little world. Uh, and Wyatt is clearly uh, very good at this um, and writes a sort of bunch of... Uh, short poems of various kinds. We'll talk a little bit about the yeah. form of They Flee From Me. But I mentioned earlier, you know, his his wide experience on the continent. He's traveling all over the place as an ambassador. Um, he, he wasn't uh, only spending his time waiting for an audience with the Pope. He clearly talked to writers. He, he uh, had conversation with people in, in those courts and he read poems, read poems in Italian, read poems in French. He read Petrarch, uh, the great humanist Italian lyricist, um, and he brought those poems back to England. So Wyatt is, uh, we think, the first person to translate Petrarch into English, and some mm-hmm. of his best poems um, are poems uh, that are adaptations or imitations of the Italian. Not They Flee From Me, but Who So List to Hunt is a is a 
is a translation, free translation of Petrarch and so on. And, and so am I right in thinking that Wyatt is then sort of instrumental in introducing the sonnet into the English tradition? That's correct. Yeah. 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 It gets picked up by his admirer, the slightly younger uh, Henry Howard, the Earl of Surrey. Um, and Howard is son of the Duke of Norfolk and someone very well positioned in the court and uh, with a kind of aristocracy of, of birth quite beyond what Wyatt, uh, Wyatt has. Um, and it's, it's Howard's uh, taking up of the sonnet and Howard's prestige, Surrey's prestige, we usually right. call him Surrey, um, that kind of accounts for a lot of the subsequent transmission uh, of the sonnet as a form, but Wyatt's the guy who introduces it. That's right. Okay. Um, so that's, yeah, that's fascinating. So the, the you know, the picture <clears throat> I have in mind is right. A poet not publishing in anything like the ordinary sense that, that we've, that we understand, obviously these poems are sort of circulating within a very small and elite social world and they're, um, and, and clearly he has, uh, I mean, I don't know my, I, I'm not at all, um, a specialist in the period, obviously, uh, but um, I he, one one gets the sense that the talent he's a kind. I don't know. I feel this way about some poets, Jeff, more than others. Even great poets, he seems to me a poet from like from whose fingertips are it's like dripping talent. Like he's he you know he turns a beautiful phrase. I don't know how else to put it, and it's sort of surprising often. And so I don't know where that comes from. Um, and of course, it's one of the great mysteries of life. I mean, you've given an account in which it, it, it clearly, in part, comes from a reading of things in other languages and of, an, of um, a certain kind of opportunity, uh, perhaps a freedom from other kinds of material concerns. Um, uh, but, but beyond that, maybe it's hard to say. Um, yeah, and I and I think um, you know, you asked when did he write or where did he write? He sort of yeah. wrote wrote everywhere. Um, yeah. You know, we have poems where he describes himself as uh, in exile from the court in Canton and yeah. sort of writing bitter satire. Um, there is one manuscript, which we may have occasion to talk about, uh, which is actually partly in his hand. Yeah. Uh, and scholars have looked at the inks that are used in that manuscript and discerned that some of them are clearly from Spain. Um, so he worked on it at home. He worked on it on embassy. Uh, all all around Europe. Uh, so this was an activity um, that he had to sort of braid with his very, very busy political life. Um, I suppose if you're an ambassador and you get sent to France or Spain, there's there's a lot of downtime on those trips, right? <laughs> there's right? a lot of time on the road, you yeah. know, if you can keep your pen steady. Right. Um, and uh, and it's also, it's clearly a way for him um, to express to himself uh, and to the intimates with whom he shared these poems um, some s some of the um, discomfitures, some of the agonies, uh, outrages of court life. It's a, it is a, yeah. also a dissident mode for him, a mode of, of protest, if private protest. And that too, I think, is something that, that comes out and they flee from me. Was was Henry VIII reading these poems? That's a good question. I'm sure uh, some of them, yeah. and some of them not. You know, we speak in this period of of uh, the stigma of print, 
uh, which is to say, uh, you know, nothing, you know, nothing does more honor to a poet in our moment than to have a, have a book with a press and so on and so forth. But for an aristocrat of this period, um, why would you want a book printed? So it could be spread among people who don't matter to life at court. Um, and so, so these are all these are all poems that we have to imagine as being sort of passed from hand to hand, loose right. leaf, or copied out by people in their commonplace books. Right. Little now, sum is dot. Aspect yeah, yeah, to yeah. It. Now, now this this poem in particular um, seems, you know, to to take on and from its own particular angle, one of lyric poetry's great subjects, which is er- erotic love. Um, is that typical for Wyatt? And um, you know, are are poems um, not just in this era signaling um, a kind of social uh, prestige, but also means of seduction? I mean, are these? Uh, where, do you do you, does, do you have a sense of that too, Jeff? Yeah, that's just a wonderfully um, rich and and complicated question. Um, they are. Uh, erotic poems in a Petrarchan vein. Yeah. So they sort of imagine that intense relationship to one half real, half imaginary person. Yeah. Um, but Wyatt's poems, as I think we'll see with this one, they're, all, they're always interested in other audiences, in onlookers, and the sort of challenge of maintaining erotic privacy within a court uh, where all sorts of bonds could be advantageous one day and deadly the next. So, so fair to say then, Jeff, that even if this poem, which will, uh, I'll invite you to read for our listeners in just a moment, even if this poem um, seems, well, I don't know, a naive listener might think, well, he seems to be talking about a particular woman right and a particular ex, uh, sort of experience he had with a particular woman um that and and presumably given the 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 kind of image you've given us of the social world within which these poems circulate if that's even the right word to use get handed from hand to hand that woman may have been among the readers of the poem it it's not as though that this is like um a love letter which posterity has somehow saved and now published. Uh, that is why it had some uh, some deep awareness that his audience was a complex thing, even if it wasn't the public in the way we think of it. It wasn't simply one other person. It was th- these were poems that that had um, sort of a nuanced view of who would be reading them and with what impression and what impressions they'd be forming. Um, have, have I described that well? Um, I very well, I think. And, and in some ways they're all really questions, uh, for the poem itself, because I think the adjustments, um, of, of audience and moments when it's speaking in different directions and at different scales fluctuates so much. Well, let's let's hear it. I mean, we've um, I, I'm I'm eager now to hear it. This is a, this is a poem um, 
that that I really love, and I and I'm and I'm just so delighted to have the privilege to listen to um, to get to talk with a real expert um, like you about it. But but first, we ought to read it. And so and oh, I also know that, um, or because you've told me, and and I think I've seen this here and there, that there are changes, maybe um, some significant, some relatively trivial, having to do with um, standardizations of spelling and that kind of thing. Um, different versions of the poem that one can find you have a preferred one um for the purposes of this conversation at least is it worth you know for the general listener right now is there anything we ought to know about that before we listen to the version that you've chosen for today's conversation it 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 may be interesting as we go to talk a little bit about what happens when the poem does get published it's probably written in the early 30s um 1530s uh or late 20s it's very hard to date um Date Wyatt's poems exactly. Right. Um, uh, and okay. we and have, so if he was born in 1502, then he is likewise either in his late 20s or early 30s. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and he's um, uh, the, the, the text that we'll be working with um, is from a manuscript um, that has his hand all over it. He had an amanuensis writing his poems, but but there are annotations and lines in his hand. So we have a good authority that this is the poem as Wyatt wanted it. Um, but interesting things happen to it wherever it travels. I see. Um, and those may be worth talking about. So especially when it first gets printed, you know, about 20, 20 25 years later. And now it's traveled here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. read, it, read it for us if you would, Jeff. Okay, here we go. They flee from me that sometime did me seek with naked foot stalking in my chamber. I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek, that now are wild and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand. And now they range, busily seeking with a continual change. Thanked be fortune, it hath been otherwise twenty times better, but once in special, in thin array after a pleasant guise, when her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, and she me caught in her arms long and small, therewithal sweetly did me kiss, and softly said, Dear heart, how like you this? It was no dream. I lay broad waking. But all is turned through my gentleness into a strange fashion of forsaking. And I have leave to go of her goodness and she also to use newfangleness. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. So that's Jeff Dolvin reading Sir Thomas Wyatt's They Flee From Me. Um, Jeff, uh, is is a beautiful reading of the poem. Thank you. Uh, for people who aren't looking at the text, you know, I find it useful sometimes just to stand back from it for a moment and say what we see on the page. Um, I see three stanzas here. Is there anything interesting, noteworthy to you about the way this poem is sort of organized at that scale, sort of at the scale of the whole? 
Yeah, three stanzas, um, seven lines each, rhymed A B A B B C C, uh, and that's a that's a form that gets called rhyme royale. Won't won't have that name for a while yet, um, but it's Chaucer. Um, that is, where did uh, where did Wyatt get this? Well, he got his sonnet from Italy from Petrarch. He gets this form from Geoffrey Chaucer, mm. the English poet, the well of English undefiled, as he gets later called and and so that's a real that's a real statement that this is a this is a homegrown poem <laughs> um elsewhere he imitates seneca um but this this poem is to do with england uh and has roots in england and there's other chaucer in it as we'll see good okay um all right so you know maybe as as we have occasion to move through the poem, we'll, we'll want to say something about, um, you know, the three stanzas might suggest a kind of dramatic progression of argument or of narrative or something like, you know, something like yeah. that. Um, uh, I, I generally speaking like to begin with the beginning and, oh, and I, I noted in way back at the beginning of this episode in, in introducing the topic for today that, um, you know, the poem gets referred to as they flee from me. Is that its title? I mean, does it make sense to talk about a title here or not in the, I don't know. Is that even an interesting question? No, that's really, it's, it's handle in a sense, yeah. the handle by which we grab it. Right. Um, if you see, if you look at it in the um, Edgerton manuscript, it just begins at its beginning. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, just to sort of open a parenthesis there, it, the whole, uh, the whole history or the history of the, printing of this poem is part of the history of titles yeah. because when it does get printed, it gets a title. Yeah. Um, the title being the lover showeth how he is forsaken of such as he sometime enjoyed, <laughs> which <laughs> somehow catchy, has, has become right, the, <laughs> the handle that we grab. And, and maybe we can, I'll say maybe a little bit more later on about, about titles and the history of titles, but, yeah. uh, but this one just jumps in. Good. And, and so in any case, you know, my, my, um, the, the, the reason I brought it up in, in this moment was to say that first line has always stood out to me. So sort of prominently, it's sort of, um, has a whole kind of world in it. It's clever in its in its way, and um, I just want to invite you to say something to us about the the kind of structure that you're detecting, or the drama that you're um, that that you're feeling, the tone, or something like that of that first line. They flee from me that sometime did me seek. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, as you as you kind of prophecy, there is an architecture to this thing, maybe a sort of large juxtaposition of, of scenes or even sort of narrative moments. Um, but in some ways, the, the sort of basic, for me, the basic experience of the poem is, is being subjected to its tone, which fluctuates so much as it goes. Uh, so they flee from me. Is a pretty confident utterance. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that's a position of power to say, uh, you know, when I come, they go, they flee from me. Right. Suggest um, that, that the I who's saying that is, is um, a predator or yeah, dangerous. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And then, it, you know, we're just four syllables in that sometime did me seek. So wait a minute. They, they flee from you now that that used to seek you. Well, 
possibly that's still a posture of power. That is, you know, they used to feel confident sort of coming to me, uh, but now they know better. Um, but already we have just a little shiver of they flee from me now, mm, but once they used to, you know, once yeah. once they used to come around yeah, more yeah. often or more willingly. Um, so, I guess it's not clear at that point that the that the first line is about an erotic kind of um, situation at all. I mean, maybe it's suggested, but and it emerges strongly as the poem goes on. But at that point, it could be about anything, really. I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. And trying to discern sort of the 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 ratios in any given line or any mm-hmm. given moment of of politics and and eros right. um, is sort of one of the kind of endlessly provocative bafflements of, of Wyatt. And one of the things that I think he needs to speak to in a sense about, about his life. We don't know that Thomas Wyatt had an affair with Anne Boleyn, Mm. um, but we know he was sent to the tower for it. Right. Um, So, so yeah, they killed (laughs) and then not killed. Right. Right, Then let, let, let out again to be of service again. Sure. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, there's something about the, um, I don't know, is it, is it, would it be the right thing to call it a chiastic structure that that first line has like flee me, me seek, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, that, that, that takes you through the mirror, uh, through the looking glass as it were. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. And also I, it, that does open up a question that I've found myself rereading the poem, thinking about and wondering if, if, if we might get anywhere, with it, but the relationship between this poem as a kind of verbal artifact, something with with form that you can sort of appreciate as a kind of accomplishment, sort of along the way, on the path to the ideal of a, a poem as a as a as a monument in some sense. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, as a as a as a succession of speech acts, or or just as a as a as a person talking. Um, with all of the contingency and fragility and, and in real timeness of that. Um, and so that, you know, talking about tone, I'm, I'm leaning on the real timeness of they flee from me that sometime did me speak, seek. Yeah. Um, but in pointing out the chiasmus, you're saying, ah, but look, you know, it's got this kind of symmetrical structure that seems almost independent of that sort of wavering authority. Yeah. So, uh, oh, that's interesting. I mean, oh, oh it, maybe it's worth like um, just glossing for people who are unfamiliar with, because it, I, I think that the use of sometime is sort of anachronistic, mm. you know, um, or archaic, right? So that doesn't mean like sometimes as in the every, every now and then it, it means used to, right? Or yeah. Something yeah. Like that's, that. yeah. that's right. Good, good to point that out um, because it's, it's not like it's, still going on happens sometimes and sometimes not. This is that um, sometime in the sense of, you know, uh, my sometime friend, my former friend. Right. Um, uh, And it has, even in the period, that sort of slightly arch distancing in it. But sometime did me see once. Yeah. 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 Good. The, the, um, I'm, I'm interested in the way time um, is experienced in this poem and all re- that, that first line gives us a kind of before and after or, um, or, or rather mm-hmm. after and before, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. structure, um, yeah. 
the the um I don't I don't know that I don't think this is in the published um letters that I I I know that the poet James Merrill do you, do you know this you'll find this amusing Jeff um I read a, a letter of his once um in which he said that he tried his hand at a modern version of this poem but never got past the first line and he rendered the first line as they turned me down that once did call me up. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That's Isn't that great? great? That's that for play on great. down and up, you know. <laughs> but it does something. To, there's, yeah. there's nothing in they turned me down that is powerful sounding and which is maybe part of what makes it funny it's sort of pathetic from the beginning yeah Um, yeah. and this isn't that right so so now maybe we're in a position to talk a bit more broadly about the first stanza and feel free to bring in any lines or moments that you that you like but sort of the situation in the stanza the kind of governing metaphor that's never spelled out explicitly but that seems to be the the kind of um you know, embedded imagery of the stanza is of, uh, um, of, uh, of animals of, of a kind of, um, hunted and, uh, or a kind of scene of hunting or something. So, uh, I, I, you know, um, how conventional is that? I mean, I know, I know you say, um, this isn't, um, uh, at least formally speaking, this is a kind of a, at home poem. This is a, a form inherited from Chaucer. This isn't um, Wyatt doing Petrarch in the um, sense that we talked about earlier. But the conceit of that first stanza, in which the it seems like the the lover is um, an animal who is either um, tamed and amenable to. Um, you know, sex or whatever else, and or or wild and can't be um, is I, I don't know how to um, how should we think about that the sort of dramatic situation or the um, uh, rhetorical kind of situation of the first stanza, Jeff? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that 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 sort of figure of the the animals um, is quite prominent really governing in that first stanza and then it goes away and it's not going to come back. So it feels a little bit like a, a, a strategy of mastery that he's trying out. Mm-hmm. Um, there once were these women who came to me um, and uh, with naked foot stalking in my chamber. So um, those are th- their feet who are naked. Right? I think so. I think yeah. So, yeah. so there's a there's what feels like a, a a really charged erotic game of predator and prey there, where perhaps the roles can can flip because they're the ones who are doing the stalking. Right. Um, so so we've kind of opened up this uh, even slightly kind of kinky kinky space of um, erotic f- freedom experiment pleasure. Play. Yeah. Play. Yeah. Play. Um, and you can, you can feel the voice sort of clamping down on that at moments, um, and trying to sort of make that relationship with the animal, one of hunter to hunted, um, or of, you know, somehow tender to tended, something like that. Mm. I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek. Um, I, I, I've, I've, I've seen them 
uh, defer. I've seen them cower. Um, uh, and then, you know, and those are, who knows what animals those are exactly, but possibly deer. And there's another yeah. famous Wyatt poem, who so list hunt, I know where is on hind a, a deer, mm-hmm. um, that sort of develops that, that relationship. Um, but it's something else to know about animals, mm-hmm. uh, that they too are political <laughs> huh. deer belong to the king that poem who shall list to hunt ends um noli me tangere touch me not for caesar's i am and wild for to hold though i seem tame um that is i the deer uh may be beguiling but watch it because i belong to someone else i belong to the king um and so some of that energy is is here too uh as these animals, these women defer, um, but then assert themselves or simply rebel, um, that now are wild and do not remember that sometime, there's that word again, sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand. Um, You know, they used to, they, they, they used to come to me, they were attracted to me or my power was charismatic and magnetic who knows what it was but it was good for me the speaker of the poem um, and am- and amenable for them and amenable for them and they you know they may well have gotten something out of it although i wasn't at the time thinking of their strategic interests right. i was thinking of my own right. um, the person who feed, yeah. who feeds a deer from their hand is not nourishing the deer really mm. mm-hmm. right yeah they're, but they're they're um sort of luring they're they're um i don't know creating a kind of experience of intimacy you know that it's interesting it's it's complicated because what it's not is quite i mean the the threat of violence seems there but it's it's always withheld it's not mm-hmm. really the violence isn't in the poem it's sort of outside of the poem as a as something that is who sort of whose knowledge is provisionally suspended or something Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's really that's lovely that that sense that this is not this is not feeding the animals right (laughs) it's it's a species of play um and a, a reminder of sort of where your bread is buttered, I guess. <laughs> um, to take bread at my hand. And that word danger is, um, I think we can take it uh, in really the, the fullest modern sense. Um, it also has a little bit of a, an erotic uh, valence to it in the period. The idea of love danger is a, is a sort of Chaucerian phrase it's the erotic peril that you put yourself in when you have an affair at court and when love and the various sort of lines of authority uh get mixed up and tangled with each other um, and it it was worth it for them to put themselves in danger to come to me to be with me um but but again, that that sometimes, sometimes they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand, and and now they range. It's a great word. 
yeah. um, busily seeking with a continual change. There's a lot of power in that idea of ranging. Now that now they're they're free, they go where they want and they go widely. Yeah. Um, there's something and, really, yeah. So go on, please. Oh yeah. well, just just that again. It feels like that. That's a that's another moment of that sort of subtle tonal modulation where he says, and now they range, which is really from you know imagining our speaker and Wyatt as sort of the same the same person, sort of Wyatt, the ambassador, always being told to go here and told to go there by Henry. Um, that there's a lot of it seems to me kind of respect and admiration and envy, something like that, and range. And then he clamps right down on that, busily seeking with a continual change, which sounds slightly contemptuous as though, um, you know, what I really want to say about them is, you know, they've become uh, fashion victims. Now they're just sort of trivially chasing the next thing. Mm. Um, so Busily sounds pejorative in that sense. Yeah. yeah. And we haven't even begun to talk about uh, rhythm yet, but you can hear. Wow, that was going to be my question for you. The, the, <laughs> the rhythm of that line really changes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Sort of all front loaded feet, it seems like. Yeah. Busily seeking with a continue. Yeah. It's, it seems sort of fussy, fast, and, and uh-huh. trivial. Um, yeah. To take bread at my hand and now they range is a, is a pretty measured uh, line, all those monosyllables. Um, and then it becomes kind of jittery and, and nervous. Um, right. And maybe this is a moment just to say a little bit about the rhythm of these Please. of these lines, yeah. Because um, I think this is, in some ways, what first drew me to Wyatt was uh, the the mystery of of how to read him aloud and and how this poetry is supposed to sound. Um, you could read that first line: "They flee from me that sometime did me seek." Um, and say, aha, I am now embarked upon a poem in iambic pentameter. That's what uh, it sounds da, like to me. Da, da, <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, and uh, another of the teachers that we have in common, and we were talking about this just a little bit before the show, John Hollander, a wonderful poet and critic and um, theorist of meter. And he has a concept and, that I... And scholar of the Renaissance. And scholar of the Renaissance. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. Um, he uh, he speaks of the poem's uh, capacity to make what he calls a metrical contract with the reader, um, which is you know in its its first lines a poem will establish a set of expectations. It's like okay, I am a poem in iambic pentameter, um, and so now you can continue to read me that way. That is you know, your reading voice can kind of steer the lines towards those rhythms, those five I ams, da-bum, 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 where I am is that unstressed, stressed combination, da-bum. You can can read me that way. And also at moments when I break that contract, when the rhythm changes, you, you can ask questions about that. Right. Um, it will sound like a departure. It will sound like a departure. And you may want to ask, huh, what's going on? Why does it depart there? Does it have motives for breaking its contract? Um, having said all that, uh, Wyatt is really writing at a moment before iambic pentameter gets consolidated as a, a normative line in English verse. 
Um, so uh, there are people writing in lines of 10 stanzas. Um, Chaucer writes a lot of what we would call iambic pentameter, but for complicated reasons having to do especially with whether or not the, the E is pronounced at the end of a word, things like that. It's, it's hard for the 16th century to hear Chaucer right. that way. Right. So, so we're kind of, we're blundering around a little bit um, in relation uh, to, a, to a, a line that's going to sort of crystallize pretty shortly right. as a, as a rhythmic norm. Um, so we're, we're, as it were, wrong footed a bit um, yeah, by okay. that, by that opening, they flee from me that sometime did me seek with naked foot stalking in my chamber. And that still feels like more or less five beats. I have seen them gentle, tame, and meek is another line that's plausibly iambic, da, 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 da. just doesn't have that unstressed first syllable. But it gets weirder and weirder. Um, and by the time we get to busily seeking with a continual change, <laughs> Um, then if there was a contract, then it's being sort of flagrantly broken. Well, well, uh, I, I feel tempted to make what can, can often seem like the reductive and too obvious move, which is to say that, you know, to read, read the rhythm sort of mimetically in some way and to say that the sort of authority of that first line is partly communicated by the regularity of the rhythm and that when things become destabilized in some way, we hear it happening too, that, that now are wild and do not remember doesn't, you know, you don't hear the, the kind of, um, uh, the, the oscillation as regularly in, in a, in a line like that. Um, but I hear, I mean, and, and it's, and, and I had flagged and meant to ask you about busily seeking with a continual change, um, which sounds like it's just from a different kind of poem altogether. Yeah. I, th I think you're really right to, to read it that way, mimetically or expressively. Right. Um, and, uh, I mentioned Surrey earlier, um, who, uh, a little bit later is going to translate, two books of the Aeneid into blank verse. He's really the first uh, English writer of, of blank verse of unrhymed iambic pentameter. Um, and those lines are, are very regular. Um, and it's clear that he's making a proposal that a heroic line in English should sound like this. Da, 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 da. Um, and that is enormously influential. Um, and it leads to, 20 or 30 years of, of quite conservative uh, uh, rhythm in English poetry, where the rhythm and the meter uh, are very close to one another. So uh, the distinction I'm making there is between, on the one hand, the, um, uh, the kind of disposition of stress in a line or in any sentence, the sort of way in, way in which the beats fall. Right. Um, and meter as the formal expectation um, for how those beats are going to be organized. Right. So we often think of a difference between um, the, the the meter, the expectation, and the, the actual rhythm of the line. Right. Um, and there's some very broad sense in which poetry, post Wyatt and pre Dunn, <laughs> um, is uh, 
there's a collaborative project of proving that English can be as metrically regular a language as any other, including French, including Latin. Um, and so uh, you have poets like George Gascoigne or Surrey or others who, who really just write like a metronome. Uh, there are very uh -huh. few metrical variations. Um, and it's only, you know, Philip Sidney and others start to start to play, start to break that contract again um, for kind of polemical or expressive purposes. But, but Wyatt is really writing before that contract. So he can use the iambic pentameter line, but when he's using it, it's not exactly because it's the norm and everything else is a departure from it. Right. It's just one of his rhetorical resources. So right. it's like when he wants to sound stately, a line like that, yeah. or poised, a line like that as a resource for him. Um, but when uh, when his speaker gets agitated, or as I think at the end of this stanza, is sort of trying to get a grip on his own admiration for these rangy women and re-describe their transgressions as kind of um, uh, uh, tri trivial fashionability. Um, well, you can do that with all those little unstressed syllables jumping around that. in the line. Yeah. And they're seeking, you know, um, without an object even, or without a stated one, they're just sort of, you know, wandering away. Yeah. I mean, he's not saying, you know, that they've left me for these other men. Yeah. I mean, it's perhaps implied. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not as though they've made a choice between constancies. They've, they, there was a former sort of proper, you know, attention to him. And then the other is just, and, uh, you know, uh, arbitrary contingent. Yeah, yeah. It's like a sat there are satellites that have lost their planet or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good figure. And and there and well and in moving into the second stanza, it it seems to me there's a kind of reassertion of the sort of authority or strength with which the poem began. I mean, it's almost comical. Uh, thanked be fortunate, it has been otherwise twenty times better. <laughs> you know, like it just sounds to me like an adolescent kind of oh. I've had lots of girlfriends, you know? Yeah. Pure braggadocio, I think. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there's a kind of bluff pagan, thank be fortune. You know, it's right. not thank God, it's thank be fortune that hath been otherwise um, more than 20 times. That is, you know, I haven't got enough fingers and toes to number all the women uh, who came to me in that first mode that I recall. Oh, sorry. Is that what the better means after 20 times more than 20? It doesn't yeah. mean it, it was better in our sense 20 times than it is. Uh, I, I, I would read it as 20 yeah. times, you know, more than 20 times. That I see. Is, yeah. You know, yeah. Good. <laughs> I lost count. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Yes. That's like, uh, yeah, sure. I, I get it. That's not an actual number. That's a, a gesture towards plentitude or something. Yeah. Um, but but so then there's a really interesting play for me that I want to ask you about in that second stanza, which, you know, if it went on in that mode that we've just been describing as the first line and a half of the second stanza, thank be fortunate, but it hath been otherwise 20 times better, it would it would for me not sap that I am, I guess, not be as memorable as it turns out to be, because then there's this kind of like rapid transition from this sort of collective um, habitual experience of the past with a kind of particular memory 
you yeah. know, this the sort of singling out of of a of a particular moment. Um and, and I and and so I don't know. I I, I wanna I wanna just ask you, Jeff, to to talk about how you read but once in special and the and the you know, what is the relation, in other words, between the particular example cited and this kind of atmosphere of power and plentitude that had seemed, you know, like braggadocio, um, to use your word, um, uh, just a moment earlier? H- how are the how do those sort of puzzle pieces fit together in your reading of that second stanza? Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a wonderful and surprising moment, um, and it's it's maybe a good point to come back to the question that you you asked early on about who's the audience of this poem who's who's listening to it um and i think there are three possibilities uh for that one is that Wyatt is talking to himself um and i'm going to keep speaking as though Wyatt were the speaker of the poem and some in some poems i think that's extremely um uh arguable problem, potentially problematic claim, but here I think it works pretty well. Sure. Um, Wyatt talking to himself. Wyatt talking to a peer or maybe to a slightly younger man with similar ambitions and aspirations. Um, mm. uh, and then finally the possibility that he might, he might be talking to or might be heard by, by this woman. Um, and I think, I think the, I think the poem, um, yeah, I think it's just so mobile among those possibilities, but but presumably just to pause you there, there would be different demands or expectations given those three roads that you've just sketched out for us. Were he to go down one or the other, or at least presumably there would be, yeah, maybe in some interesting way there wouldn't be, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think, I think very much so. And um, if I had to, you know, if I had to s- s- give an answer in a sense to the question, I'd say that this is a poem that is, uh, as as it would have been, you know, in in courtier circles, um, addressed to a to a peer. Um, but but it is a, a voice that is. Um, only uh, only intermittently able to to remember that that's the situation that it's in. That is, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to tell you a story about court life. I'm trying to explain to you how things were great for me once. They're not so great now, but mm, that doesn't matter. I'm still the man. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, I'm listening to myself speak and reacting to myself speak and and as i do that i intermittently kind of lose lose a little bit of a grip on my project of persuading you persuading you how authoritative i am um and then there are also moments where this woman is so much in my mind that i f- forget you and i forget myself and it's this oh i'm speaking to her and i'm 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 trying so hard to manage the situation if i were a a sort of poet in perfect control, which is to say a much inferior poet. If I were a poet in perfect control, then I would be steadily engaged in uh, a sort of project of self-advertisement. But 
the material that I'm, the memories that I'm working with are, are, are so charged that I, I lose that. Um, yeah. And I think this is, this is a moment like that. Thanks be fortunate. It has been otherwise 20 times better. I'm saying that to you. Right. Um, but once in special is, is a memory that comes upon me with a force that actually distracts me, diverts me from that project of self-assertion. And now, now I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm in that moment. Uh, and what I see is not who I'm talking to, but, I see her in thin array after a pleasant guise. Um, she's she's sort of dressed in something maybe diaphanous, um, and it's it's fashionable <laughs> after a pleasant guise. And uh-huh. you can again hear him just trying to in thin array after a pleasant guise. You know he's trying to work himself back into that posture of you know slightly satirical these women and their fashions that was the spot that he took in the end of the first stanza. In right. Thin Array, after a pleasant guise, a little dismissively, but he can't hold on to that. When her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, um, that's just magic. That's, um, that's all pretense slipping away, possibly even for both of them, uh, and slipping away just by force of gravity. Um, and whatever and, posture of um, predator and prey was present in the first stanza gets reversed here, right? Yeah. And she caught me in her arms. Yeah. Yeah. And whether that's... I mean, the, the gown falls, but now it's like he's falling and she <laughs> catches him. Yeah. 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 Right. Is it predation or is yeah. it a rescue? Is he, yeah. you know, I, but he, you know, catch me and she does in her arms, long and small. That's so plain and so, uh, so lovely, small means slender there i think yeah um and that sound comes back in there with all you know the all Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah 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 there with all sweetly did me kiss and softly said dear heart how like you this yeah um (laughs) it's so good jeff (laughs) it's so good it's so it's so it's so immediate it's so painful it's so um it 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 seems so accurate in the sense that he's remembering what happened and quoting um, her directly and like quoting it, her, yeah. i wasn't a, you know i'm not i'm not not ever expecting it you know even though i know it, it's coming yeah. you know yeah. it's like her words are now in the poem not just in the poem but sort of in this sort of place of privilege in the poem coming at the end of the stanza at the end of the line yeah you know you know, I I, um, I taught for a year at Brandeis. It's a very happy year, and um, yeah. and uh, one of my colleagues there was Billy Flesh, uh-huh. William Flesh, uh, and he he said something about close reading. That's always stayed to me, and I I stayed with me. I, I use it from time to time with yeah. students who are trying to figure out, you know, what kind of attention are we talking about. Mm-hmm. He says, imagine you're breaking up with someone. And the person you're breaking up with says one sentence and then walks out the door and all you're left with is that sentence. All right. How much have you, would you think about, have you thought about that sentence yeah. and all that it could possibly mean? Every word, yeah. every comma, every gesture, every tone in it as best you can remember. Um, that's close to reading. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and it, this little fragment feels like that. I mean, he he heard it, but 
but what does it what does it mean? It's what he has oh, now. How like you this? Yeah, so what I hear, like... I was I was um, my my um, ears perked up earlier when we were talking about the first dance, and you said the well the animal stuff doesn't come back, and I thought, well, doesn't it? Is there a pun in dear heart? I mean, um, <laughs> you know, in yeah. other words, uh, well, heart, so for people who don't know, right, a heart is like a a male. Deer, have I got that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and and of course, the word "deer" is itself a homonym. The, you know. Yeah, yeah. I. You're I right. How clever can we be there? Like, is she? <laughs> is she sort of? You know. I guess we can't resolve these questions, but is there the possibility that she is sort of, re, sort of playfully in that moment reversing the metaphor? You know? Yeah, I love I love that, and particularly you know, as you as you said, you know, picking up on on caught on that reversal just a little mm-hmm. bit bit earlier. And that's, you know, does our speaker want to hear that in a sense, how, how he probably remembers it every way. Um, but yeah. it could be the most generous, dear heart, how like you this, um, uh, a, a, an open question, a real question. Uh, but it could also be, you know, what do you think of this? Right. <laughs> how do you like this? Um, an assertion of authority on her part, which is a little bit more in line with what you're hearing yeah. um, with the, the sort of return and, and reversal of the figure of the deer and the hunter and the deer. Yeah. 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 Um, I love how the, the, this it rhymes on the kiss, you know, but, but it, it's also pointing back to it. It's like, a mm-hmm. you know, Presumably. Yeah. Um, yes. And I love what you just said about how it's, it's, it's uh, insofar as the, the sort of evidence of the poem is telling us that he's making this argument. And then I love the way you described how this sort of um, particular memory makes him lose his train of thought as it were, and he gets swept along by it. Presumably it is the kind of memory, which he's, replaying every way and it's it's at once a tender moment and a kind of um vulnerable moment for for him right and um and a moment of the sort of loss of power um now something's being done to him um yeah yeah it's just beautiful and 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 then sort of into the third stanza, it was no dream. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, and the, the way that line splits down the middle, there's so much, um, there with all sweetly did me kiss and softly said, dear heart, how like you this, there's, there is a, a kind of momentum in that, which is just like, this could go on forever. Right. And then it was no dream. I lay broad waking, um, now you know he's shaking himself uh did this happen it did happen um, right i was there and i was awake um and i'm awake now right. <laughs> perhaps sleepless thinking about it or have been sleepless thinking about it um so let let me assure you and again this is the sort of moment when maybe he's talking more to himself has forgotten a little bit that he's trying to talk to somebody else and persuade them. Um, because his point to the 
to you, I'm, I'm, I keep making you the courtier here, but yeah. his point to you is, I don't care about these women. They're, they're all right. effectively interchangeable. I've had 20 and of them. I've had 20 of them, exactly. And so when I say it was no dream, I lay broad waking, I'm trying to get myself back back to that spot, but I'm still, you know, I'm still privileging this one moment that I can't forget. Right. Um, and that's the, you know, the conversation with myself is about her. To you, I'm trying to say one of many, but I'm confronting never again. Yeah. Ne never, never again. And that's, that's the, that's a deep fear of this poem, erotically and politically both perhaps never again. Do you, do you think where that I was? Yeah. Do you think that the, the memory is so kind of vivid and powerful for him that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's as though in the, in the kind of time of enunciation of those lines, it's as though he's addressing her. I mean, I, it's funny. I actually had to remind myself like, oh, there's no second person in this poem. Is there, it's all in the third person because it sort of feels at that moment, like it's in the second person, you know, like, you know, like he's speaking to her. Um, um, but that the, the kind of movement from the second stanza into the third and that I, I was no dream. I lay broad waking period. And that it, it's as though she sort of just, just as, 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 as surely as she sort of entered into his presence while he was speaking those lines, it's now as though she's vanished um and he's back alone right and and now back sort of addressing the dumb man that he was talking to before or to yeah. himself you know yeah yeah. Right. yeah i think i think that's right it's it's uh you know that's a that's a real petrarchan inheritance these kind of broken visions you right know, you see it and then it's gone and you can't recover it and it also feels um, very romantic to me i don't mean just i, I mean like fled is that you know gone uh -huh. is that dream you know do i do i sleep or wake you know that yeah. sort of moment and the yeah yeah anyway yeah i realize right. i'm so getting keeps, my keeps the end. Yeah, yeah yeah um fled is that music right yeah yeah fled is that nightingale music. yeah um yeah uh I, I i i think that's right and i think that's you know that these um these resonances sort of across literary history are such such real things you know that um if you know you have this the same kind of physical string strung, strung across the same lute it will vibrate when you read nightingale and it will vibrate yeah. <laughs> when you read That's they good. flee from me That's um, good. different as their situations are um and i think i mean i just as i'm kind of reading it now it, there may be some way in which uh, Wyatt speaking to you, Courtier, and speaking to himself, they come together a little bit. And maybe there's a little bit in the wake of her disappearance, a little bit more of a sense of, of solidarity that it becomes a little, he's now, he's now he's trying to figure out what just happened. And, and he's being, he, he's trying it out on whoever is listening, but all is turn it through my gentleness. Um, because I was so gentle yeah. and so disarmed, all is turned through my gentleness into a strange fashion of forsaking, into a sort of a weird, weird, a weird kind of leaving. 
she, she, she left me, I think, Mm -hmm. but it was in a strange way. And, and there's that word fashion, you know, when we hear again, just the hint of his management of the situation by dismissing it as kind of Mm -hmm. fashionable variety. Um, but a strange fashion of forsaking, even if there's, there's a hint of that dismissive fashion, that's not really what he's doing now. And I have leave to go of her goodness and she also to use newfangledness. These are difficult lines. Yeah. But I think it means something like, um, how is it that I wanted to stay but ended up leaving because she gave me permission to. Right. So I have leave to go. Leave is yes. means, at least in the first sense, a kind of permission, right? I am permitted to go because of her goodness. I'm sort of filling in and taking all the poetry out of the line. But 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 um it's not just our modern ears, Jeff, but presumably it would would have been just as true, if not more, for Wyatt's readers that leave to go is is a kind of paradoxical play on words too that you know or um or or there's something in other words i guess what i'm trying to let me ask it as a question mm. is the confusion the difficulty i have and it sounds like maybe you were um sort of reassuring me is normal to have at this moment in the poem is it a is it an artifact of um our historical distance from this moment or is it is it somehow there in the original in a way that you as an expert in the period can tell us about you know yeah, reassure that, us that is there yeah that's a that's a that's a great question i i'd not put that question to it um because it feels like um you know you have leave to go uh, so sort uh-huh. of idiomatic enough yeah um, but I, I'm, I'm second guessing myself now. It, it, it does feel as though it, it puts additional pressure, um, on, on this sort of question of, of what it, what it means to leave, um, who's leaving whom. Oh uh, yeah. Like, you, you know what it makes me think of it because you said it earlier. It's like the, 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 the line about imagine someone's breaks up with you and gives you one line is, you know, in the way you could say in the wake of a breakup, like, Oh yeah, no, it was mutual or whatever. Right. It, yeah. Or, or as a kind it's, of sa- it's face not saving. You. It's right. not you. Yeah. <laughs> it's me. Or, you know, and, and it was so, it was so good. And we've got that crazy preposition leave to go of her goodness. What, what does uh-huh. that mean? That's a real Wyatt these sort of impressionistic prepositions, which seem to serve all sorts of possible connective agendas without stipulating any of them. In fact, but, if you take out the word leave, it's, and I have to go, you know, uh-huh. it's, it's not right. um, have as possession, it's have as like compulsion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And that she does, that, that definitely shadows it, you know, yeah. but she managed, you know, partly this is a courtier, someone you know, as why it was right. uh, sort of expert in the arts of, of courtly negotiation and the sort of delicate power plays that are sort of part of life and the orbit of Henry VIII saying, how did she do that? Yeah. <laughs> that was good. There, you know, among the tonalities here is something like professional admiration. All right. It's like, you know, hats off. 
<laughs> and it seems like that the sort of expectation or the the sort of code by which such games are played is that there won't be too much protesting at the time of departure. It's like, does that, is yeah. that right? And yeah. he 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 would have he he perhaps he should have or he should have asserted a, a, an authority that perhaps he had, except that she so managed it that. It was her pure generosity that allowed him to leave, Uh that allowed him to do the thing that he least wanted to do. And she also to use newfangleness. So that's a strange... Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, this fluctuating tone, that's a Trosser word. So we're sort of back. uh, Which one is newfangleness? Newfangleness, yeah. Um, uh, How was it that I, I allowed her... I released her to participate in this sort of newfangled world of um, of sort of courtly performance and change, um, and a little, you know, a little bit of of again that that incredibly labile, self questioning, self doubting voice, kind of having just said, "I have leave to go of her goodness in bewilderment and, and admiration," sort of recovering itself enough to say, "And she also to use newfangledness." You know, that's that's. That's all. That's all it was. Is the plain sense of that line? So, if I have leave to go, so I'm permitted to go. Her goodness has permitted me to go, and her goodness has also permitted her to use her newfangledness. Is that? I I think it's, and I have leave to go of her goodness, and she has leave right from me. Although I I hardly knew I was granting it. Yeah. To use newfangleness as yeah. to behave after this new new fashion, where um, where whatever it was that between it was between us means nothing the next morning, which is a which is a, a tonally a very different kind of description of the same phenomenon or state of affairs that was previously described as busily seeking with continual change. Right? I mean, yeah. it's sort yeah. of the same thing, right? She's yeah. all just sort yeah. of. Right, and he's he's trying to you know find find that kind of self self centering satirical voice again. Um, yeah. And so, well, with that in mind, the the not that we've exhausted by any means the um, all the lines that precede it, but the concluding um, couplet of of the poem. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. I'm, I guess I'm offering a reading in my emphasis of particular words there, but, yeah. um, but, you know, I think tonally the word kindly is hard to, um, to, uh, make, well, a lot depends on how you take the tone of that, the deployment of that word. Um, and I, yeah, so I want you to walk us through some of the possibilities that you encounter just as a, as a reader of those last two lines. Yeah. Yeah. But since that I so kindly am served, well, I think a modern reader first hears kind in relation to gentle, tame, and and meek. Um, And there is it admiringly or ironically, um, she manages so well, she treated me so kindly, even though she was jettisoning me. Um, uh, since, Since she treated me so well, what does she deserve? But there's another sense of kindly there as well. Um, uh, a little bit 
sort of more active in the period when Wyatt is writing, but since mm. that I am, am served in kind. Right. Um, so she since, did to me the kind of thing I did to her or exactly. would have done or something. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps, you know, perhaps I was, I've been busily seeking with a continual change myself 20 times better. Sounds like it. Yeah. So, right. yeah. yeah. So a little bit of, huh, you know, since, since that, you know, turnaround is arguably fair play, then what, uh, what has she deserved? So that sense that, uh, um, kindly as in, in kind. And here, you know, we began by talking about, um, animals and sort of various forms of, of sort of power relation in, in relation to, to gender and the court. Um, and this feels like the moment when he sort of has to confront her as both beloved and an equal adversary, um, right. or even, you know, his better, um, right. because she has won, she has won this. If it was a contest, then she's won it. Right. Um, so, th- so those, those positions of hunter and prey or human and animal are not in the, in the kind of world of this poem, um, roles or, you know, sort of permanent positions to which say men and women are affixed, but instead they're, they're kinds of roles that they provisionally occupy with respect to each other. And the roles can be flipped as we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And to discover in Wyatt's imagination, this kind of contingency, uh, in relation to love, uh, and, in relation to the roles that men and women play in this court, um, in relation to power, um, is so still so shocking. Uh, and that I think opens up in that final line. I would fain know what she hath deserved. Um, and tonally you can give that, you know, so uh, what could I have done? What should I have done to her? She deserves, you know, I, um, I, I, you know, there was a blow I didn't land. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's the dominant tonality. And, and even though in that word deserve, there's language of, of service that's sort of politically rich for the period and Mm -hmm. so on. Um, I think, I think there are moments in, poems that are good poems <laughs> where you can f- feel them trying to push away you know everything but their own questions everything but their own language or their own urgencies um mm. what what did she deserve what did she deserve now at this moment what did she ever deserve looking back across all of my life as the speaker of this poem? um, How did I treat women? What did they deserve? What do they deserve? What do I deserve? There must be some, there must be some better account of of how we treat each other um, than the sort of world of courtly game that I've been Mm -hmm. negotiating my relation to throughout this poem. Um, as though the poem at the end springs for a moment free 
of the world that it's been trapped in and sort of tries to ask, you know, what do we owe each other? Right. Um, and then it's done. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's done. And actually this is the sort of, as that's lovely, Jeff, it's the question that's been kind of loosely forming in my head as you've been talking about those lines. And as I think back to the second stanza, I mean, we, we, um, we sort of foregrounded as a possibility that the that the tripartite stanzaic structuring of this poem might imply a kind of shape of an argument or of narrative or something like that. And I'm just imagining a kind of alternate version of this poem in which the rather than it being one, two, three, it's more like one, three, two, where the poem, what if the poem sort of ended with the memory of the, of the kind of um, intimate encounter um, as, as it's kind of lasting note, this, that would be a different kind of poem. Um, So, I mean, I offer that as a kind of um, hypothetical um, alternate, uh, version for you to consider by way of sort of clarifying what the fact that it's this way and not that way um, promotes as a as a kind of larger scale. Um, you know, I keep coming back to the word argument, argument that the poem is making, or kind of um, set of investments that it might have. You know, it's um, it, it's um, does that make sense as a question? Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, if it, if it ended with that second stanza, um, I think the remembered experience of that encounter um, would be an almost visionary rebuke uh, right. to the various kinds of rhetorical maneuverings elsewhere in the poem, if that were the final note, I think it would be something like, um, for all this, there was that moment. And you could kind of imagine perhaps the speaker of the poem sort of carrying that away with him as a talisman against right. um, the uh, the bewilderments of, of his own practical situation. Um, that's sort of like how I, how I take the, uh, like how the poem is lodged in my mind. It's that second stanza that stands uh out to uh me, but uh that's, but I'm seeing that that's a kind of willful misreading or something. Yeah. Yeah. And one, uh, one that I think is so, you know, there, there are sort of currents in the poem that drive that way for sure. That is, you know, um, if only it had ended, you know, maybe even forget that third stanza altogether. Right. Um, but the, the third stanza is like, okay, so what is it, what is it like to live with this memory now that you no longer have it? Yeah. Um, and does it, you know, it's, do do you learn anything from it? Is are you changed by it? Yeah. Um, and in a way, it's like the, the the sort of first stanza has the whole narrative in it. You know, I used to be, you know, I used to have success and now I've been deserted. Then the second stanza, like, um, gives us a particular example. The, the third stanza returns us to that narrative of the first, but has been informed by our kind of carrying with us the, the memory of the particular beauty of the, um, you know, encounter. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Hmm. Since that I so kindly am served. I mean, I guess I guess part of my question too is like, how bitter is that? Is the yeah. articulation of that line? Yeah. You know, is it sarcastic in other words, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I I think I think the potential for sarcasm mm-hmm. is is there. And um I can't I I want to see the line as lifting out of out of that, perhaps yeah. even as it speaks, and sort of finding the radical question with which it ends as a radical question rather than the kind of how am I going to get revenge for this yeah rather a how should we live you know how should was, we live that's yeah. the radical question you're hearing at the end I think yeah. so how should we live and how should we how should we treat each other how, how should we love different yeah. how should right. we love uh-huh. yeah what do we deserve good um well, um, Jeff Dolvin, this is this has been um, a thrilling conversation. I'm I'm glad I twisted your arm. <laughs> you allowed me to. It really required no yeah, twisting. That, that was the joke of it. I said like, <laughs> yeah, fine. We don't have to do why. I think Jeff was worried that like his reading of why it was too well formed, and maybe it would be better to do something about which his opinions were less committed. And I said, sure, that's fine. But you know, whatever. It's it's fine either way. He said, okay, fine. Let's do why. <laughs> um, it's tempting, and and now I, you know, it's easy to see why it's just such a it's such a beautiful poem um and uh and 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 maybe with that in mind i i can ask you to to read it for us so we can hear it in its entirety one more time yeah i'll do that and then and then i'll um follow that if i may by reading the last stanza not as why it has it in his manuscript but as it gets printed in Tottle's Miscellany, which is the sort of first place that it appeared in print in 1557. And that you'll hear, um, that's an an edited version of the poem where it has been rewritten uh, to be in iambic pentameter. So it, against the incredibly excruciating expressive quality of the rhythms in the poem we've been looking at, the uh, the version in Tottle's Miscellany, which is the version that everybody reads for a long, long time, uh, is written to conform with this new strict English prosody. Do you want to um, give us, I mean, y- you do it your way, but do you want to at least consider the possibility of giving us that other version first and then ending with the rereading of the poem? Or how would you rather do it? It's true. Maybe Wyatt should have the have the last uh, the Maybe. last word. Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, I think do it your way. I'll yeah. Let me because it's the thing about the revised version is that one does one thing that's really. But then yeah, okay. Really so good. you'll have to tell us what that one thing yeah, is. I will, so I I, will, I, I, tr- I turn it over to you, Jeff. Okay. Um, and I'll just say that this is you know it, it, one of the things you never ever do is like buy. Uh, um, Oh, I don't know. John Gilgood, supposing you could get a you could get a recording of John Gilgood reading the Shakespeare sonnets or something. These, these great English actors, it tends not to, it tends to be very, very blustery. And but hmm, you know, this is, would be an interesting poem to get Ian McKellen to read, or an interesting poem to get Judy Dench to read, or you know, some of these these sort of kind of ex- elaborately expressive sort of Royal Shakespeare traditions. Cause it's just so next totally. week on close readings. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But that's, you know, I yeah. set myself up. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to read it. Here it is. They flee from me that sometime did me seek with naked foot stalking in my chamber. I have seen them gentle, tame and meek at now are wild 
and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand. And now they range, busily seeking with a continual change. Thanked be fortune, it hath been otherwise, twenty times better, but once in special, in thin array after a pleasant guise, when her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, and she me caught in her arms long and small, Therewithal sweetly did me kiss, and softly said, Dear heart, how like you this? It was no dream. I lay broad waking. But all is turned through my gentleness into a strange fashion of forsaking. And I have leave to go of her goodness, and she also to use new fangleness. But since that I so kindly am served, I would fain know what she hath deserved. And so here's what Richard Tottle does with it. It was no dream, for I lay broad wide waking. You can hear how he's da 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 da. But all is turned now through my gentleness. I'll read it a little into a bitter fashion of forsaking. Hear his rhythms. And I have leave to go of her goodness and she also to use newfangleness. Here's what's interesting. But since that I unkindly so am served, how like you this, what hath she now deserved? And that I think is pretty interesting yeah. to reach up earlier in the poem and pull down her words. And I would fain know, is, is sort of per per perfectly good in, in Wyatt's version. Um, uh, but I think Tottle is onto something, uh, and to imagine that speaker still haunted by those words, sort of replaying them. Her voice is perhaps coming back in, speaking through him, or right. he can only he can only sort of speak that that echo. Uh, but I think it's a it's actually a pretty delicate emendation. It does more than just make the meter work. Yeah, yeah, and if. if if the implication in the quotation in Wyatt's original, let's call it original version, was that she is playfully directing, if not his words, then his sort of posture back at him. You know, there's a kind of implied earlier version in which he catches her, you know, mm -hmm. now she's catching him. How like you this? Um, how like you this, <laughs> you know, um, that the, 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 this version, which you've just read us, this emendation is sort of turning that mirror around one more time. <laughs> it's just that, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I don't know. To, 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 I mean, it's, it, I, I hear what you're saying it, to, to my ear. It's also sort of like, I don't know, gilding the lily or something like that, or, um, or taking out some of what I like as the undecidability of the, the kind of tone or posture of that of those last lines. I think I'm with you. Yeah. I think I'm with you, but it is, but it is, this is what people heard of Wyatt. And, yeah. um, whereas many of the changes in Tuttle are, are pretty junky. Uh, uh -huh. yeah, there's something, yeah. some, something to it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's interesting too, because now I want to say something about how, well, you know, it's as though he had tamed the poem or something, you know, mm -hmm. he had, <laughs> right. You know, and it was <laughs> too good. gentle, you know, it allowed, it allowed itself to be caught. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, no longer, um, 
this has just been, a, yeah, like I said, Jeff, a, a thrilling conversation, and um, and thank you for um, for for giving us the time and the attention and the um, intelligence that you always bring to poems. Um, it's a real it's a real treat for me, a real honor, um, and I know that our listeners um, will share that feeling. So, um, thank you, listeners, for um, for um, spending the time with us and. Um, Stay tuned. There will be more episodes of Close Readings to come soon. Be well, everyone. Thank you so much, Cameron.